0: You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects Journal. In this series, we're honing in on the frenzy of activity leading up to COP26, the International Climate Conference, which will take place in
1: Glasgow in early November. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, director of 1.5 Architecture.
2: Certainly, it's a conversation we're having a lot around our site. How we create space for activism and protest That not viewed as disruptive so that's an interesting one where we have a client who's very anti-protest and what i'm hoping that we see is lots of people taking to the streets in a really positive and powerful way they won't be anywhere near cop because the the secure zone is several several hundred meters in every direction from the places where the actual conversations will be happening
0: Today our first guest is architect Becca Thomas of New Practice and our second guest is civil engineer Stephen O'Malley of Civic Engineers. Both are involved in projects on the ground in Glasgow as the city prepares itself for COP26. Glasgow and London-based New Practice has an extensive track record in community engagement and is a member of the Mayor of London's Architecture Design and Urbanism Panel. New Practice was commissioned in August by Glasgow City Council to activate a vacant riverside site just next to the COP26 secure zone. A pop-up event and exhibition space will host several PechaKucha sessions, films, a one-to-one passive house demonstrator, e-cycles, and more. When I recently asked Becca why New Practice has been selected for this role, she told me because we're good at bringing people to places. Estimates for the number of delegates and visitors who will travel to Glasgow in person during the first two weeks of November vary widely. Some say there could be as many as 30,000 visitors, including a planned protest march and a cycling event, Pedal on Parliament. Becca, it's great to have you with us today. Tell us about exactly what you're planning for COP26.
2: We've got this great site that's been underused, vacant for about 15 years. So we've been taking that over with Glasgow City Council and really looking at how we can work on their behalf to expo and exhibit a whole bunch of interesting kind of businesses and organisations who are doing, who are, who are really starting to publicly present different answers or different ways of responding to the climate crisis and then thinking about how we also add a programming element to that, add something that really speaks to the people, both of the citizens of Glasgow but also people who'll be visiting the city and and what those community members or activists and people who are really really interested in this might want to see and do in the area as well. So that programme at the back will include, as you said, films and, and petra kuchas. Um, we're also gonna have presentations from really fantastic groups, like I'm hoping the Inuit Council are coming to present some of their work, speaking about the indigenous person's experience of the climate crisis and how they're working with biodiversity in really, really, really different environments to the ones we see in our kind of urban centers and trying to bring that together with, you know, activist groups who are based within the city or based within Scotland and thinking about how we can use that as a space to really start a discourse or
1: continue a discourse that these groups have been having for years. Well, that sounds great. So, new practice is a fun name for a practice. Does it relate to your way of working? I guess when we were trying to think of names for what we wanted to be, we never
2: wanted to be Thomas Cairns architects. Number one, that sounds like an accountant. Number two, it's not really um, how we want to be doing our practice. I don't think it's about us. I think it's about our team and the work that we're doing and equally, yeah, finding new ways of working, finding different ways of working, working in a space that is primarily architectural around the built environment, but also includes community members and also allows for kind of an artistic presentation sometimes. Those are all things that we're interested in doing through through our practice. I think people who do very traditional practices are doing a wonderful job but it's also not the job that I want to create or not the space that we want to create within architecture. How many are you? At the moment, we're nine and we're split between Glasgow and London. So we have uh, seven based in Glasgow permanently and two in London. I think we've always been looking for new and different ways to be architects or to be within architecture. And a large part of that comes from, I think, just setting up a practice when you're not an architect. And when you've got some years to go before you can be an architect, how can you influence the built environment or how can you be involved in decision making and involved in the things that you want to see happen when you can't build a building, when you can't make that change directly. So that's where a lot of our work has come from through that kind of stakeholder engagement and decision making and really being involved in like stage zero, pre-stage zero discussions around changes to the both urban and rural environments that that we work in.
1: Because in the history of Glasgow, like with its post-war redevelopment, it was very much top-down with the dispersing of communities imposed on people from above. How does regeneration work now in the city? Uh, I understand that you've been doing some work at Sight Hill.
2: Yeah, I think it's hugely different now. Partly, I guess, there's been a political shift in the way that Scotland and, and Glasgow look at how they make change. Acts of Scottish Parliament, like the Community Empowerment Act, have really made a huge impact on the the requirement to do more than a kind of statutory engagement. To, to really, really bring communities and members of the public into decision making at quite a high level. So you're no longer really able. I think you shouldn't be able in a Scottish context to really put a top down decision that would impact people like like you know might previously have happened with the moving of communities uh, quite. wholesale from centre uh, out to the um, urban edges that big shift means that you can sit and have conversations with high-level decision makers within the council within the local government and national government and in those conversations you also have to have Anne who lives down the road Anne who lives down the road's voice is, is important in those spaces what we're trying to do is make sure that but communities have the language and the way to really put through what they need to say. We all know when we kind of get a bunch of architects and urban designers together, we start using acronyms or we start using language doesn't make any sense. or we start talking about concepts that we are really, really aware of and really, you know, um, that we use to conceptualise our work. And so often they just don't connect with a lived experience of a place. So I think for for a huge part of that, it's making sure that that community members have the language or that we as professionals are changing our language to make sure that that is suitable and that we're working in in kind of plain English as well as in professional and technical language. The Community Empowerment Act could be a really dangerous thing. It could be a tool for governments to say, we want nothing to do with this, we'll give it to you and you have to sort it out as a community. But I think where it's been used really powerfully is... To bring people into decisions rather than giving them the decision making power entirely with no no understanding of the responsibilities or the no resources to deliver on the outcomes.
0: So can you give an example of a project where you've done that, that you felt it really worked well?
2: Yeah, so Sighthill Hill is an area in the north of Glasgow, largely social housing, um, and has gone through a huge programme of change over the last 10 years, and will continue to do that for the next 10 years. It's particularly disconnected from the city centre, despite being only five minutes walk, if you could walk directly, and has had a large community of asylum seekers and recent arrivals to Scotland, as well as white Scottish working class communities. There's been a, a huge programme of demolitions followed by a programme of rebuilding, going from large multi-storey blocks back to a more tenemental structure that feels much more of the city. And so we, we were working with um, yeah, those decision makers. So GCC and the Scottish Government asked us to work with people to make a community garden. And we spoke to people and they said, I don't want a community garden. I've got 25p at the end of my weekly budget and that is money I want to spend on something else. And I don't have the resource and I don't have the time. And by the way, I've got three children and two jobs, not enough support in my life. I can't also take on this risk or this extra work. So we worked really hard with them to figure out what else they actually needed in their community that would help them create the social links um, and connections that they had been missing, that that had been broken by a lot of the demolition, and and really start to rebuild those and, and understand what power they could have as change was happening. Uh, around them so in the end what we did is built a community dining set and it's got cups and plates and cutlery and everything and you can use that in the local community centers so instead of having to borrow their cups and paying 50p per cup and 2p per tea bag you can bring everything with you Um, and it also frees up these spaces where people who have very little resource left in a week can go and have a mothers and toddlers meeting now because they they don't have to pull together the £10 it would have cost them to hire the room and take the tea bags and the cups. So little things like that. So the community dining set is one and also beginning to just share some learning. So that community group now have Facebook pages and a Twitter handle and an online presence and a place for them to come together that they've been able to organise. So we did a lot of training around digital literacy So the outcome is completely different, I think, from what the decision makers thought they wanted. But the outcome is actually what was needed in that space to allow people to start building the resilience to become the community group that could one day have a community garden. But they were so far away from that outcome when we started that they couldn't possibly have got there. So yeah, and I guess that that similarly, we've been doing a lot of work with a community organisation, a charity based in the south side of Glasgow at the moment, called Kinning Park Complex. So we've gone with them through the process of buying a building and renovating that. We've been working with them over the last five years to redevelop that building and uh, get to a point where it will open in January or February 2022, and it will be warm and dry and beautiful. (laughs) Um, And they can go back to holding, you know, really powerful events there, like the community meals and everything else that they do.
0: Fantastic. So tell us about what else you're planning during COP26. ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network, will be in Glasgow at many studios The adaptive reuse of an industrial market hall into a creative hub which i believe you're also involved with what can you tell us about that
2: yeah so acan's work they're going to be presenting as far as i understand it a series of talks and discussion evenings and and afternoons which will bring together a lot of both the wonderful work that acan are doing across the uk and also start to bring in more local voices so I haven't yet seen their final programme, but I'm really delighted that they're going to be using our space in the east end of Glasgow to kind of bring that conversation to Scotland in a way that I don't think the ACAN voice has necessarily been heard in a Scottish context before. So yeah, uh, we're
1: delighted to host them for that. And what can you tell us about the planned protest activities?
2: My understanding is that Glasgow City Council would like there to be almost no protest activity during COP certainly it 's a conversation we 're having a lot around our site that we 're delivering and and how we how we create space for activism and protest that isn 't in lots of ways a gcc that isn 't viewed as disruptive so that, that's that 's an interesting one where we have a client who 's very anti protest and what we 'll be doing there is trying to make space where we can hold really open discussions and be a place for people to both come and have all the forceful discussion we need to have and also have a space where they can sit and have a pint after a busy day of doing that elsewhere. So I think that's a really important space for us to create this kind of central gathering space that I don't know will be offered elsewhere in the city. I know the protest march is, I've heard wildly different things about this protest march, about whether it's going to be, you know, a couple of hundred people or several thousand are walking through the city. The uh, highest we've heard of for the march is about ten thousand people, which will be extraordinary if they manage to pull that off. And I know there are a number of groups that the Pedal on Parliament group are doing a Pedal on COP event. So really thinking about how active travel can form a key part of our response to a climate crisis. So they will be doing cycle events to the protest march for for people living around Scotland. So I, I know there are cycles coming in. I think I saw one being planned coming in from Dundee for the day. So um, people cycling to and, and from those those protest marches. I think it will be really interesting to see. And what I'm hoping that we see is lots of people taking to the streets in a really positive and powerful way. That is what I'm beginning to see from some of the activist groups that I know of that, that are working around the city. Because the secure zone is huge. I mean, they, they, they won't be anywhere near COP because the, the secure zone is several several hundred metres in every direction from the places where the actual conversations will be happening. And a lot of that will be happening behind closed doors. So I'm delighted we get to offer at least one space where people can do that through both many studios and, and through our site on the Broomy Law and have those conversations publicly because I think it's really valuable.
1: You're also working with Hawkins Brown on the Custom House Quay project, which aims to better link the riverside to the city centre. What can you tell our listeners about that project?
2: Yeah, so this is Custom House Quay, is a, a length of quayside on the north bank of the Clyde that runs basically from kind of Glasgow Green, which is one of the largest parks in the city centre, um, all the way up to Central Station, so quite kind of central in the city. At the moment, the quayside has got a series of public realm interventions that are very of their time. So we have a big amphitheatre and spaces that have never ne- never necessarily worked the way they were designed. So it does come from that period where Glasgow was very top-down planning. That said, it is a well-used space in that it gets a lot of sunshine when it's sunny up here and you can sit out on it. But that's what we're doing with Hawkins Brown. So we're looking at how you might change that space and the city council is really keen on that becoming a site for development they need to do some work to the quayside wall the quayside is falling in there is a large amount of marine engineering that needs to go on just to keep that embankment safe and what we've been doing is really doing that conversation piece with local community residential businesses to really understand what are the balances? If the council are very, very keen and the national government are very keen on this being a huge development site for the city, big tall buildings on the riverside, how do we connect with our riverside again kind of project? What are the balances that community members want to see in that space? How how do we want to keep being able to use it? What does this need to deliver as a public realm then to make that loss of public space valuable enough for the communities who already use that, that area? Sounds um,
0: like a really key project and also with resilience in mind, yeah. reworking the whole, you know, the river wall there. And let me ask you one last question, Becca. For anyone coming to Glasgow, what would be your top tips?
2: Well, obviously, you should come to many studios and see what ACAN are putting on there. And you come come visit our site in the Broomy Law. That's number 220 Broomy Law, um, the Sustainable Glasgow Landing and that will have a whole host of events. But I think also there will be a huge amount of activity happening, I think, really around George Square and the city centre. And getting a chance to really see what the city council's done over the period of the pandemic and expanded a lot of the pedestrian space and cycle routes in the city. Actually, I think if I was visiting the city, that'd be something I'd really be happy to see. It's something I love as a resident here. But if you're a visitor who's visited before and knows how awful it was to walk and cycle around large parts of the city centre, to see that huge shift um, and, and growth in the city. I think would be uh, that would be all. I'd right. get on a bike and, and cycle around.
0: Well, that's what Stephen O'Malley, our our other guest today, is talking about. So it's really great to have you on, Becca, and so interesting to hear what you're up to. And we will be following. I don't think I'm going to make it to Glasgow myself unless something changes. But I'll certainly be following things closely.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Our second guest today is civil engineer Stephen O'Malley, a founding director of Civic Engineers, a practice of 150 structural and civil engineers with offices in London, Glasgow, Leeds, and Manchester. Some listeners may know CITU, the Leeds Climate Innovation District, where Civic did both the civil and structural engineering. Stephen is also a co-author of Transport for London's Excellent and Comprehensive SUDS Guide from 2016, along with landscape architect Joe Gibbons, our guest on episode 11. Stephen is currently leading several projects in Glasgow as the city of 600,000 people gets ready for an influx of up to 30,000 visitors in early November. Civic Engineers is responsible for the first phase of Glasgow Avenues, an ambitious restructuring of the city center to prioritize people instead of cars, the redevelopment of Custom House K along the River Clyde with Hawkins Brown, a major regeneration project which aims to better connect the city to the river, and an asphalt art installation around Anderson Rail Station, which also includes rain gardens, and is supported by Bloomberg Philanthropies. Stephen, it's great to have you with us. Let's start with the Avenues project, a project which is tackling seven major through routes in the city center, introducing rain gardens, segregated cycle paths, and tree planting. My understanding is that this project has been made possible through over 1 billion pounds of city deal funding from the Scottish government and the EU. Can you describe this project for our listeners? Many of them may not know Glasgow.
3: Certainly. The city deal funding is, I think, in total a billion pounds. The portion of that that's related to the avenues is 150 million. And the project is predicated on starting to meaningfully change the environmental quality of the core streets in the centre of Glasgow. There's about 16 to 18 streets wrapped up and defined as the avenues project all in the city centre and if you think the city centre is defined by the River Clyde to the south and then the M8 as it sweeps across to the west and over the north of the city, the high street marks the boundary off towards the east. These streets, these existing streets, are a function of traffic-orientated design, so there's a lot of tarmac in those spaces, which doesn't serve well the very handsome streetscapes that Glasgow actually has to offer. However, these changes will see us, or the city rather, embrace streetscapes that are much more social, much more about making walking and cycling far more attractive and desirable, and also making the streets much more sociable. So they're the key principles or the key attributes of these new spaces.
0: So how did you convince the city council and other city centre
3: stakeholders to get rid of the cars? Or how, how does this impact cars? Yeah, well that's a crucial point and I have to say uh, total admiration to Glasgow City Council and their political leaders for being courageous in pursuing this agenda and and instigating this project. Uh, So it's very much Glasgow City Council that have driven this agenda for change. Having said that, as you quite rightly point out, there are a whole series of stakeholders and interested parties, statutory agencies and, and, and others that have a very real interest in how these changes may affect their operational methods or their land interests or their legal responsibilities. So the process for us I think which is really interesting is taking on board the positivity and the momentum that the city council had had initiated with the original commission. We spent the first 6 months running a sort of learning and sharing program and in that period we held a series of full-day workshops which were really well attended by many of the officers stretching across the different directorates within Glasgow City Council and other stakeholders and we then brought Best in Class from across the UK to talk about their experiences in other places. From there through that dialogue emerged what became a series of study trips so we then took typically Glasgow City Council officers to different locations to meet their counterparts in those places and have a awards and all conversation about what went well and what didn't go well and what the benefits have been in those locations. So for example we went to the hugely successful Great Green scheme in Sheffield to hear firsthand about their experiences, the improvements that were made in the streets in, in Sheffield or we took a group across to Dublin and met Transport Infrastructure Ireland who were responsible for routing a second tram route through the city centre and using some fairly innovative techniques to deal with water management such as structural soils that officer to officer conversation was was vital in providing the confidence uh in the glasgow city council officer group to then come back to to return to glasgow from where we set up a series of pilot schemes and this then allowed us to gather some empirical data which we also partnered with the University of Strathclyde engineering faculty so that there was a monitoring and, and management regime put in place to gather the empirical data to see how these, uh, these pilot schemes were performing.
0: It's really great to see this example of a pilot project with monitoring. This evidence-based approach to design is exactly what we need more of. So, was the Avenues project prompted by Glasgow being a host city for COP, or was this happening
3: anyway? This was happening anyway. We've we've been involved in this project for probably four years. The wider mood and appetite for climate-responsible decision-making is well embedded in the city. So, it has been a boon to the city to become host city for, for COP, but actually, I think there was already a really strong appetite for these ideas
0: Okay, so let's talk for a moment about the Riverside project that you're working on with Hawkins Brown, the Custom House Key. I believe it's early days, but what can you tell us about
3: that project? Again, the city recognized that the key wall, so this is a a kilometre-long section of the River Clyde Bank on the north bank, immediately adjacent to the city centre, running eastwards from Glasgow Central Station up to the Clutha, if anybody knows that part of the city. I think rather interestingly, like many, many cities, Glasgow had effectively turned its back on its river and there was a high degree of severance as a result of the highway that cuts through there. It's currently part of the strategic network. But furthermore, the opportunity to positively employ or offer interest or things to do on the riverside is limited by the footprint of space that's available there are cyclists and some other hardy souls that do use that space throughout the year and of course when the weather's half decent it's also very popular but actually in terms of passive surveillance or other more sort of regular constant or consistent uses is is actually pretty limited so the city took the opportunity of needing to replace and upgrade the existing key walls which are well advanced in their years I think there's still some green hardwood timber that's still used for some of the key wall structure so the city took the opportunity to holistically deal with the technical issues around the dilapidations in the key wall and re-engage with the river and create some space for development there's a there's a delicate balance between all of those things of course and as you've alluded to we're still in the early stages of how that space is apportioned and ultimately how it will function. The key point being there that there is no diminution in the amount of public space and public access and ensuring that the public will have full access to the waterside down along the full length. How individual development plots might come forward and sit within that landscape is clearly something that's that's a hot topic of debate at the moment and what that balance ultimately should be. I must emphasise that the city are especially keen that the waterside is a resource for the people of Glasgow and that they want to make sure that it's offering up an attractive south-facing waterside environment to really offer up that amenity and, and pleasure for, uh, for the people that come to visit Glasgow and live there, of course.
0: So is there an ecological agenda with this rather than a hardscape approach to the river edge?
3: Absolutely. And certainly from our perspective, we want to employ a nature-based solutions for all these different choices. So we'll be attempting to incorporate ecological habitats and ecological measures at every turn throughout the process.
0: I also want to hear about the asphalt art installation under the M8 motorway You showed me a few early images of this when we met recently on the rooftop of Cannon Green, a project in the City of London where Civic did the structural engineering. Does that project also have a surface water flooding angle to it?
3: Yes, it does. Uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies provided some of the capital revenue or funding, which is part of their international initiative. And what we recognize is actually... You could do the asphalt art and give some energy and reinvigorate the space and that would be a positive thing in and of itself but actually one of the issues with anderson cross is the station is sat immediately below the m8 viaduct and the m8 viaduct has a series of down pipes that convey the surface water from the motorway down through the columns and into the wider drainage network and what we regarded as a really straightforward thing would be to disconnect those downpipes and route the water through a series of rain gardens. So we actually give some additional benefit to the place and give it some vitality and give it some life in addition to the asphalt art. So it then became a really playful thing and the theme of water became a driving force in in how the, the artwork and the painting and the composition of the overall plan came together and that was then extended out to include bringing in local community groups and schools to actually undertake the painting and the stenciling as part of a coordinated educational program. I have to say some of the little vox bops from some of the children in particular just talking about how they then have a little bit of ownership of that space uh, and it makes a stronger connection where they start to really think about what's happening there as they pass through it and share that story with their friends and family.
0: That's fantastic. So is there a problem with polluted water going
3: into rain gardens? polluted water from the motorway. Uh, no, rain gardens are a very effective biofilter that takes suspended solids and other contamination out of rainwater on highways. And this is one example of a pilot scheme that we set up our Glasgow City Council officers set up uh, when they returned from some of the study trips at the start of the avenues and in one instance in collaboration with the University of Strathclyde we disconnected about 5 or 800 square m- meters of typical highway and rerouted that rainwater through this different mix of species and soils tied into a monitoring program from the university so we could see because one of the anxieties that the officers quite rightly had was our winters mean that we have got to salt these highways quite heavily at certain points and the salts could have a quite a deleterious effect on the plants and, and cause problems in their survival so monitoring the performance of the plants and these Pilot rain gardens over, I think they're probably in in situ now, probably about two and a half years. So there's now two and a half years worth of empirical data that the university has logged and chronicled and reported and analysed. And it's really interesting to see that the overall volume of water is reduced, the quality of water that's coming out on the other side of the system is significantly improved, and the plants have been thriving. So it is possible to deal with the issues of water quality, water quantity, and offer a biodiversity as part of the same exercise.
0: So this sounds like not that expensive a proposition for many cities to do.
3: Am I right? It certainly can be thrifty. There is a, another important point, though, that sits alongside that, because it's not just measured in terms of capital cost of putting in a gully and trying to compare one against the other, because actually the public health benefit, the biodiversity benefit, the climatic or carbon a- agenda and, and climate change agenda. The resilience and incorporation of these features improves the resilience of these neighbourhoods to be able to deal with extreme weather. And also, not just water, but also heat. If we've got soft planting in our street scrapes, evapotranspiration, as well as straightforward shade, reduces the amount of heat that uh, we, c- we can experience in, um, in our urban environments.
0: Are you working on other projects in Glasgow
3: We have a number of other projects in glasgow some of which are in in this particular type of conversation are super relevant because while we've been talking about city center projects there's three neighborhoods that we're currently involved in where we're looking at reordering the streetscapes to make them similarly much more attractive to walk and cycle and spend time in and that's uh, a really ambitious project with uh, a, a local social enterprise up in the northeast city centre up, up with St. Paul's Youth Forum. The project's called Flourishing Mull and Diner. Uh, and that's trying to make the journey from those neighbourhoods and from those communities into the city centre so much more attractive to undertake by bike or on foot or by other means that's not in a private car in particular.
0: So all of these projects, with the exception of the asphalt art, I presume, were not Predicated on COP26, they were all happening anyway.
3: Indeed, indeed. And this, uh, th- th- these are just a small sample of the projects. The city's got a whole raft of other similarly minded projects that they're delivering across the piece.
0: So, do you think there is a lasting legacy of Glasgow
3: as a host city for this big event? I think COP is a, a fantastic catalyst for changes. I think more broadly, bringing this topic, this agenda, this conversation to Glasgow, to the people of Glasgow, and profiling the work that Glasgow are doing, has a multitude of benefits in in accelerating the delivery of this programme with these ideas, but also showcasing Glasgow as a city and making it clear and communicating to the world how forward-facing it is with this agenda and how fantastic a place Glasgow is, not just to visit, but actually to invest and, and spend time and to live and to work.
0: Great. Thank you very much, Stephen.
3: Pleasure. Pleasure.
0: Our next episode will bring you another guest from Glasgow with more insights about what's happening on the ground in the city during COP26 and beyond. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us so we can build an audience. You can find the show notes for this and previous episodes at architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.